Welcome everyone to Creating a Family, talk about adoption and foster care. I'm Dawn Davenport, your host and the director of Creating a Family. And today we're going to be talking about who are the expectant moms who are considering adoption. We will be talking with Stephanie Ryder. She is a mom who placed her daughter for adoption at birth in 1997. When she was 28 years old, her daughter was raised in an open adoption, and she also has a son born later that she is raising. We will also be talking with Chantilly Wijaseha. She is a master's of social work, and she has her, also has her master's in public health, and she is the supervisor of the domestic adoption program at Vista Del Mar Child and Family Services. She oversees a hotline that provides pregnancy options, counseling to expectant mothers considering adoption, parenting, or termination, and she offers resources to support the choices made by each individual. Welcome, Stephanie and Chantilly, to Creating a Family. We are so happy to have you here. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> Hello. Well, Stephanie, I want to start with you and your story. Uh, as I mentioned at, in the introduction, uh, you were 27 and uh, you were pregnant and you made the decision to place your daughter. Or you were 28, I guess. So, um, so tell me about your story. What was happening and what led you to the decision that the best option for your baby was adoption? Well, in order to explain that, I would need to back up a little and explain that I think my family is a little bit unusual because there have been quite a lot of adoptions in my family, both family members coming into our family and then other children being placed for adoption out, you know, going out of the family, as uh -huh. it were. Uh -huh. So for me, when I was 27 years old and... Um, I was a commercial truck driver. I was an over the road truck driver and I was in a really, really shaky relationship. Mm -hmm. And it made sense at that time to consider adoption. It took a little while for the father to kind of come on board with that. I think as you know, your pregnancy progresses and the expenses start mounting and, and we were not insured. So your obstetrician wants a $10,000 payment before she'll, well, she'll deliver you anyway, but she wanted payment. And as these things are starting to mount up, it became much more real to him. So um, and the hardest part, well, there were a lot of hard parts, but bring explaining to him what adoption entailed was um, kind of the, the turning point for, for us. Mm-hmm. And then he eventually, at what stage in your pregnancy did you make the decision? Um, I actually figured out that I was pregnant quite late. I was about 14 weeks along, almost to the point where um, over, you know, a home pregnancy test gives you a false negative. <laughs> so I was quite far into my pregnancy and I started working with an adoption agency just shy of six months, five and a half months or so um, along at that point. So, and, and were you in the position to choose the adoptive parents uh, or did the agency do that? Cause this was a number of years ago. Right. Actually, it, that was interesting. Um, we went and were interviewing different agencies, which is its own really surreal experience. 
And we stumbled across an agency that primarily did open adoptions, which none of us had had any experience of. So it was an open adoption, and I did get to choose the parents. Okay. All right. Excellent. So now we've heard about um, uh, Stephanie's specific experience. Chantilly, in your position, you see a lot of women who are trying to make this decision. Uh, a lot of expectant moms who are in the process of deciding. And while I know there is no such thing as a typical birth mom, uh, I do want to ask about what, who do you see predominantly? So let's start with uh, age. What age do, is the, it, can you make a generalization about age as to the women that you see that are considering making an adoption plan for their baby? Yes, I would say um, it's important to note that anybody of reproductive age can, is, I've seen anyone and everyone in that range uh, considering adoption and making a plan. But what I would say is that in my experience, uh, the, the common age range that I've seen is early to mid 20s. And I think a, a part of that might be because it's after they've moved out of their parents' house and it's the time in between of them trying to get their footing and trying to, to figure out their life. Um, so they might not have all of the support that they need in order to, to raise a child if they do become pregnant at that time. Mm -hmm. Well, that raises the issue of, of income. What socioeconomic mm -hmm. status uh, are the majority of women that you see who are thinking about this option? Yes, I would say the the majority of expectant moms are are experiencing some kind of financial strain. So of the lower socioeconomic bracket, mm -hmm. um, and I really, from what I've seen, I feel as though that is commonly the root of of the degrees of chaos that exist in their life that are bringing them to to make an adoption plan. So that's something that I that I often remind our adoptive families as we prepare them in this process. Let me say that and make sure I'm understanding you that you're saying that poverty mm -hmm. is the underlying root cause often. Is that what did I hear you correctly? Yes. Yes, mm -hmm. correct. And all the all the additional factors that poverty brings into mm -hmm. a person's life. Uh -huh. Is it often the main factor or just a factor? Uh, in in my experience, it it all comes back to that poverty piece, mm -hmm. and with poverty comes lack of access to certain services and certain resources. So with that, you might have some mental health issues that are never able to be addressed because they might not have health insurance or they might not have the supports to be able to 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 have the proper therapy or any kind of medication. To help with that and then when you don't have that then you can often see substance use because it's a way to self-medicate those those issues that you may have so uh i generally speaking in in my experience i've been able to commonly bring it back to to poverty as as a root cause for mm -hmm. for placement and, and the marital status i'm assuming most women who are making this choice are not married is that what you see as well yes uh, the majority of women that I've worked with do not have any kind of uh, support from from the birth father. I would say around, in, in my experience, again, about 20% of the time, we have a, a birth father involved who's willing to sign and, and hold her hand through the process. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, that's it. So, and, and of the other 80%, is it identified birth fathers or unidentified birth fathers that you see? Unidentified. Um, unidentified meaning we don't know who they are, or maybe they just have a first name, or they have a first and last name, but we're not able to, to find them. So mm -hmm. there's no real uh, substantial relationship between mm -hmm. the, the uh, expectant mom and the birth father. How many of the women, uh, this is a first pregnancy, and how many is it where it is a uh, subsequent pregnancy and they're already parenting a child? So um, I think uh, thinking of a subsequent pregnancy, it kind of, it, there's a fork in the road for that for me. Um, it, in my experience, I've seen, I think more often than not, a expectant mom has, has given birth before. Uh, but the question of whether they're currently parenting is another layer. Um, I, I see it split in terms of they might have had children in the past, but those children aren't living with them. They might be with family members or possibly DCFS involvement, um, mm -hmm. which is also often a reason for them to, to choose a private adoption because they would much rather be able to choose the family and have control over the ongoing contact that they have instead of uh, losing their, their children to, to the state and to DCFS. And, and when women have lost custody of their children, their previous children or child to the state, what is often the cause of that? Coming back, of course, to poverty on some level, but because you've already yes. said that's the main, yes. But in addition to, or, or how, what are the manifestations of poverty that have resulted in them, if, if you can generalize, in them having lost Yes, um, I would say that it's often some form of abuse or neglect. And when I say abuse, it might be sub due to substance use during the pregnancy. Um, and then also, even though homelessness alone isn't a reason to detain a child, homelessness is a comorbidity, and it's, it's another factor that plays into, into these situations. That's, that's what I've seen. How common is homelessness uh, in the women that, that are considering, that you see that are considering adoption? I would say, well, I, I'm in L.A., so the the homeless situation is is a state of emergency here. So I I might have a disproportionate number than the rest of the country, uh, but I would say almost half of the the women that I'm working with have unstable housing in some way. Mm -hmm. They may not be on the street, but they may be couch surfing or uh, in their yes. car or something. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Okay. And you alluded to this before of alcohol and drug use. Uh, what percentage of the women that you work with are actively using during their pregnancy? So again, there's, um, so women who have ongoing use during the pregnancy, I would say in my experience, it's between 25% of the time to 50% of, mm -hmm. of the time, because then we have women who may have used early in the pregnancy before they realized that they were mm -hmm. pregnant. Uh, the ongoing use really is indicative of addiction. Mm -hmm. Whereas if it's use during the pregnancy before they realized that is them living their life and continuing their lives without realizing that mm -hmm. they were that they were pregnant. Uh, so I think that's an important factor to consider. Um, it's about whether there's ongoing use after discovering the pregnancy versus just 
initial use before before realizing. And the 50% is that ongoing use or is that women who at any point in the pregnancy early on before they realized it were using? Yes, that's early on. So 50% of the time is initial use prior to realizing that they were pregnant. And what percentage uh, have addiction issues and uh, are, are continuing to, to uh, either alcohol or drugs throughout pregnancy? Um, well, I think with the, considering the opioid crisis in the country and also in California, I can't speak to the rest of the states, but meth is, mm-hmm. is definitely on the rise here and very prevalent. It's, a, so, it's across the U.S. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, um, yes, yes. Um, I would say, I can't give an exact percentage, but it, I would say maybe one in four expectant moms that I'm working with have some some form of addiction. It's not usually alcohol, but I would say the most common ones that I see it's uh, it's methamphetamines or or some opioid. And you may not have an answer to this, but how often is it a, a multi abuse situation where yes, they are continuing to use meth or opioids or whatever, but in addition, for if for no other reason other than the environment they're in, they they also continue to drink. Uh, so that they're they're a multi substance abuse. Um, I think drinking. I see less of drinking alcohol, to be honest. Um, but I will say also with the legalization of marijuana, that is definitely um, seen more as medicinal. So I've seen more and more uh, women share that they've been either taking edibles or smoking marijuana through the pregnancy because it actually helps with with their nausea or if they have anxiety or other mm-hmm. things, it it assists them. Um, so in that sense, I do see different layers. Um, but then also there are expectant moms who are not using any other drugs, but it's only it's only marijuana because it's mm-hmm. seen as as medicinal. Mm-hmm. Well, and I also don't think we've done a particularly good job as a society as we've as we've moved towards legalization of educating people of the impact of uh, the teratogenic impact, the impact on fetuses of of marijuana. So I think there's that too, which yes, you know, is complicating. Big news, everyone. The Jockey Bean Family Foundation has provided us with scholarships for free access to five of our most popular courses. You can find these courses and the coupon code at the website bit.ly slash JBF support. That is bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y slash all cap J-B-F then cap S for support. So J-B-F-S, that's all capitalized, then U-P-P-O-R-T. Again, the coupon code to get you these courses free is going to be on that page as well. And the courses are Raising Resilient Kids with Dr. Ken Ginsberg, Raising a Child with ADHD to a Successful and Healthy Adulthood with Dr. Ned Hallowell, Unexpected Stresses for Newly Adoptive Parents, Practical Solutions to Typical Food Issues with Dr. Katja Rao, and Parenting Children Who Have Experienced Trauma with Karen Buckwalter. Make sure you go to the bit.ly slash JBF support to get information on these courses. All right, so 
Um, Chantilly, what are some of the reasons that you hear from women or couples uh, when they are deciding as to the reasons why they are deciding that they want to place their baby? You've mentioned that poverty is the the root and the underlying. uh, And then you've also mentioned that fear that the children will be taken by by the, whatever the welfare system is, wanting to keep the system mm-hmm. out, whether it's called DSS, DFFs, or whatever. Uh, so, uh, so in addition to those, what are some of the reasons that you hear from women that they're considering this option? The response that I will most commonly hear is that they want, they just want a better life for their child. And it's a life that they're not able to give them. Mm-hmm. So whether it's because they don't, they don't have stable housing or uh, they don't have a partner um, or they, they don't want the life that they had growing up for the child, they want something different. Um, it really, it ranges, but it's always thinking about what's in the child's best interest and wanting better for the child than what they're able to give. Mm-hmm. So although poverty is a, is the, is a root, it sometimes is deeper that oftentimes it's deeper than that. It, as far as what the, the mom is looking for or the reasons why she is considering adoption, I should say. Yes. Yes. I would, I would say it's really amazing and humbling to, to work with these women who, who are able to really assess what they are able to give their child and simply wanting more and Mm -hmm. recognizing someone else out there can give this child more. And because I love this child so much, I'm, I'm going to experience maybe the greatest loss in my life to, to be able to provide that for a child. So at what stage in the pregnancy do you see women coming in? And, And then at what stage do they ultimately make the decision on whether to match with an adoptive family? So I've worked with women at all stages of their pregnancy, but I typically see most of them when they're in their third trimester. And I think that's because in the third trimester, you really start to feel the baby and you you might be showing at that point. So you really do have to confront the pregnancy and realize, okay, some decisions need to be made regarding whether I'm going to place or parent. So I would say in the third trimester, that's, that's typically when, when they come to me and when they'll start the process to select a family. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that you, are, you run the hotline and provide the counseling. So what type of counseling is typically provided for moms to help them decide if adoption is the best plan for them? So what are some of the things that, that you counsel them on? Right. So um, in terms of their options, we'll, we'll go through each option and assess what, and just also imagine what life would be like for them, depending on which route they took. So if they decided to parent, what would that look like? Um, if they decided to place, what would their life look like? And specifically, we look at what supports they would have um, in terms of if they decided to parent, do they have anybody in their family that could help them with the child and maybe help with childcare or even friends who, who can assist with that versus with, with adoption, will your family or friends agree with your plan? Will you be able mm-hmm. to, to 
be open about this and have support unconditionally with that. So that's that's the main piece of looking at what their supports are and also looking at what their overall goals are in life. So if they're planning to return back to work or return to school, uh, will having a child uh, really impact that them to a degree where they won't be able to achieve their goals and uh, what is what is their goal? Is their ultimate goal to raise a family and maybe it's a little bit earlier than they anticipated, but we can provide resources to help with parenting or is it much too early and they want to focus on what their their life trajectory is um, and focus on their their upcoming goals and the child might not be uh, might interfere with that. And can you, uh, do you provide them contacts for resources if they choose to parent? Yes. Yes, we do. Mm -hmm. And depending on when in the pregnancy, you may, you also will be counseling them on their options or can refer them to if termination is what they want to consider, depending on when in the pregnancy they're come to you. Yes. Yes. We do that as well. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, what do you, how do you educate expectant moms on what adoption looks like now? Uh, often, and, and Stephanie referred to this, but that, uh, and we, we'll be coming back to Stephanie in a minute here to talk about, to continue her story. But the uh, open adoption is so much more common now. Transracial adoption is more common now. So how do you educate expectant moms on, on what adoption looks like now? Uh, and, and how many moms come in with any with pre-existing ideas about openness uh, or transracially the one for that matter? Mm -hmm. So I would say that since openness has been part of the practice, at least here at Vista Del Mar since the early 80s, but I think still within our society and our community, the idea of openness is still, there's a learning curve happening, but I think any expectant mom who is doing any kind of research around adoption will see that openness is, is common practice now. So oftentimes when an expectant mom reaches out to me, they, they'll just say, I want an open adoption. Um, but what I've noticed is that they might not know what the details of that is. Yeah. They just know, what I does want that mean? openness. Yeah, yeah. Yes. <laughs> so, and that's something that I also, uh, once, we talk about that too in our options counseling of, okay, what does an open adoption look like? And we distinguish it's not, it's not co-parenting, but it is a situation where you can have a degree of involvement in this child's life. And this child will always know you and you'll always know this child. And what's comfortable for you is what we can put forth. And so that can include an annual visit. It can include pictures and updates every so often. It can be FaceTimes, it can be phone calls. And we really tease out what would feel good for, for this expectant mom and, and what their expectations can be after, after placing. And of course, we only will look at families who are open and willing to, to have that degree of, of ongoing contact um, because we don't want an expectant mom to to have to compromise or negotiate what 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 they want in terms mm -hmm. of ongoing contact. Well, that raises the issue of how are you educating adoptive parents on open adoption? Mm. Because they too uh, have, if they've done any research, they've seen the words open adoption, but they too 
are usually lacking in any nuance of what it actually means. Right, right. So we uh, we really take pride in the education that we we provide our prospective adoptive parents here at Vista, and we have a full day course where a huge chunk of it is on openness and adoption, and we really outline what the benefits are for everybody in the triad for for some degree of openness, how it benefits the child in terms of their identity formation and just having those physical touchstones and understanding where they came from and also understanding why their birth parents may have placed. Uh, The benefits for an adoptive parent to have more confidence in in being able to parent because for, for much of the child's life, they are the bridge to their birth parents and they are the connection and the relationship between adoptive parents and birth parents really serve as the foundation of the relationship between the child and their birth parent. So I think that really builds confidence and, and uh, just an understanding for, for adoptive parents. And then, of course, the, the grief and the, um, the loss that ongoing contact helps for the, for the birth parents and how it really helps them validate the choice to place. And, and it's a very affirming process for birth parents. So we go over all of the benefits of openness. Um, and then also, sorry, I can go on and on about this, um, <laughs> but also uh, considering social media and between social media and 23andMe and all of this genetic testing, if anybody wants to find someone else in this day and age, it's, it's going to happen. So why not get ahead of that as an adoptive parent and you be the one to be able to control that and not even control, but to provide that for your child instead of kind of keeping that away from them and them having to find other routes that don't include you because that doesn't reinforce you as the parent. When, when you're providing this information and connecting them to their birth parents, this is reinforcing you as the parent. So that's another piece that I, I make sure to share. Mm-hmm. In uh, just a bit, we're going to talk with Stephanie about her open adoption with her daughter and her daughter's adoptive parents. But before we get there, Stephanie, can you talk some with us about the emotions you experienced during your pregnancy? You you mentioned that you found out fairly late into the pregnancy. You were not in a, a stable relationship. So what was some of the emotions that you went through in making the decision that that adoption was what ultimately was in the best interest for your daughter? A lot of it for me, it was a lot like, um, um, if if you ever had um, like an ice shower or getting splashed with very cold water. I hate that feeling. That's that's, terrible. (laughs) That was a lot of it. It was a wake up. Um, I'm I'm, I'm not a child anymore. And there were consequences. So for me, it was a real wake-up call when I sit down and I was thinking to myself, how am I going to do this? I'm not going to be able to drive a truck. You can't raise a child in a Peterbilt. That means I'm looking at pretty much raising a child by myself. And am I adult enough to do this? And a lot of self-reflection, a lot of questioning. Um, it was a very 
lonely, kind of a sad time for me. It's hard to explain. The father was involved. And in fact, we did stay together for a few years after she was born and after we placed her. But it seemed like I was the adult in the room, at least until I um, started working with the counselor. And that was tremendously affirming to have somebody who would just listen while I'm poor. I mean, just vomited practically all these fears and worries and mm -hmm. how do I do this? How do I make this work? And what is in this child's best interest? Because it just seemed to me that getting pregnant at 27 and saying, oh good, I'm going to have a baby. She'll make me grow up. It's entirely the wrong way about. <laughs> That's not how it's supposed to be. You're supposed to grow up first and then have the child. So mm -hmm. it was it was sad. It was lonely. A lot of self-questioning, a lot of self-reflection, a lot of uh, it was growing up. Basically, I think I grew up yeah. ten years in four months. <laughs> yeah, as odd it's a as tough, that sounds, it's, yeah. No, it sounds it sounds really difficult. You were involved with uh, well, you and uh, and your baby's father were involved in the selection process. What was important to you when choosing parents for your daughter? Um, I partially, the father and I both come from very strong working class backgrounds. There are the occasional doctor in there and there might be a CPA somewhere in the family tree, but mostly, you know, we're ranchers and farmers. I mean, I was a truck driver. So I was looking for very solidly middle-class people somebody that I could relate to. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't want to choose a rocket scientist and have this child grow up to be more interested in working with her hands. Uh, you know, you want a child that I, I wanted to find a family that she would fit in with, where the background mm -hmm. would be somewhat similar. And there's, yeah, it's, uh, it was interesting. I had to come up with a wish list of what I was looking for. And I, this counselor did a really good job. I got the perfect family. They pretty much everything I wanted, actually. Okay, so you worked with uh, a counselor, mm -hmm. similar to Chantilly, I assume. Oh yeah. To help come up with a uh, a checklist, a wish list of of what you were looking for. Yeah. Chantilly, I'm assuming that you're in this position with other expectant moms. So what is the, what are the different approaches? What is, what are some of the things that expectant moms think are important when choosing? We just heard from Stephanie what she was looking for, but what are some of the other things that you have heard? Oh, it ranges. Um, I think it really just depends on what the expectant mother's uh, life experience is. I've had, especially when we think about transracial adoption, I've had um, some some moms say, I want, I want a family that actually has, that at least has one family, one family member that has the same racial background as the child, because especially in this climate and historically, I want to make sure that our, that the family knows how to raise a child with this background and knows how to equip them. So I've seen that. I've also seen Sometimes the religion is is a factor, so wanting to make sure that um, the certain values that they have will will be passed on to the child. 
Um, I've also had someone say, I want them to be athletic because I both the birth father and I are athletic and we know that this child is predisposed to this and we want them to be able to have that outlook um, or that, that those opportunities. So it really, it, it ranges, but um, I think ultimately something that I hear most commonly is I just want to make sure that there's a family who will love this child and be able to provide, um, provide for this child uh, for the lifespan. So what do you see as far as acceptance of single moms? Because oftentimes the women themselves mm-hmm. are single and are look and might be considering that, that one of the things they could give their child that, that an adoptive family could give their child, which they right. could is, is a two parent household. So how, what is the acceptance of single moms who are applying to adopt? Yeah, I think for, for individuals that are coming into the process, I think it can it can be presented to them that, oh, they might not be chosen as, as much or it might be less likely. But I think that there's, there is this sense of connection and understanding between an expectant mom and a single prospective adoptive mother. Uh, because like we mentioned earlier, more often than not, uh, expectant mothers on this journey are single themselves and they can see a lot of themselves in in the prospective adoptive mother that they chose. Um, And then I also have worked with many women who said I was raised by a single mom and, and I know, I know what it takes to be a single mother. And that means that they, they have the strength and a support system to be able to, to provide everything for this child. So Mm -hmm. I've, I've seen that. And then also thinking about single fathers as well. I've, I've had, expectant moms choose single fathers for for similar reasons of I was raised by a single dad and I I love my dad and I want my child to have some semblance of what my experience was growing up so in the last 10 years we have seen a significant increase in acceptance for LGBTQ parents uh, I'm assuming mm-hmm. given your location, you see that as well, that families, uh, expectant moms who may not have considered parents in the past who were LGBTQ would now have no problem at all. Is that what you're saying yeah. as well? Yes, absolutely. Um, mm-hmm. I think, especially just with greater education around just the different types of families that exist, it comes greater acceptance and willingness to, to place with mm-hmm. with a range of families mm-hmm. as well um, and I do have I've had birth parents uh, or expectant moms who are part of the LGBTQ plus community and that's a, a driving factor of why they want to choose a same-sex couple or or someone who identifies as LGBTQ and Stephanie when you uh, I'm assuming that you were presented written information on a number of families in, to help you in your choosing mm-hmm. Did you also meet with families before you made the selection? Actually, that was an option. I could have, but I, you know, there's something very surreal. It's all, it's, it's, you're, you're looking at all of these bios, these written bios, and you don't want to get their hopes up. So Mm -hmm. I opted to wait until I was pretty sure I found the family Mm -hmm. and then I met them. And then you met them. Yes. Okay. 
And how far, how prior, uh, at what stage of pregnancy, how many months along were you when you actually met them um, and selected them? I actually met them about, ooh, I'd say a week, maybe 10 days after I first started working with the social worker. By the time I met with the social worker, I was pretty well committed that I had made up my mind that th this is the road we're, we're going to go down. Um, mm -hmm. So there wasn't a lot of shilly sallying on my part. I, mm -hmm. I just knew that mm -hmm. that was her best shot at a at a good life. And so you were actually matched then from almost mid pregnancy on then, right? Or close. Right. Yes, that's a yeah, that's a a longer match than than is usual. But but then you also had gone in fairly with a fairly firm idea. Right. Right. For me, one of the things that was important is I wanted to find a family that would be willing to come with me to the prenatal appointments and a family that would be comfortable making some decisions because uh, you know this in my mind this was their child so i wanted them to come with me to these appointments and and to make decisions you know in terms of everything from vaccinations to who's going to be the um, pediatrician that sort mm -hmm. of thing so it was really mm -hmm. important to me that they that we begin to work together for the benefit of this child. Mm -hmm. And also so that you could get to know them oh, better. Yeah, too. absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can see that that would matter. I want to take a moment to remind you that this show is brought to you by the generous support of our partners. And these are agencies that believe in our mission of providing unbiased education and support, both pre and post adoption, fostering and kinship care. Uh, and they believe in it not only just in word, but also they're willing to put their money behind it. And that allows us to provide this show for you. One such partner is Adoptions from the Heart. They were founded by an adoptee and they are currently celebrating over 35 years of bringing families together through adoption. They're a full service domestic infant adoption agency specializing in open adoption. Adoptive parents and birth parents share their stories on the AFTH TV, which airs Tuesday morning. You can follow Adoptions from the Heart on Facebook and YouTube to watch every episode. All right, uh, Chantilly, one of the things that, that we hear from other agencies is that they see sometimes, and I don't know the percentage, but they see sometimes where adoptive parents struggle with, I guess the polite way to say it is, is a lack of the lack of control they have over this pregnancy and the desire in, to want to, if, if I were pregnant, this is what I would be doing. And this is what I want the expectant mom of my child and, and air quotes being placed around the, the word my, at that point, I had an agency say that they, that, that, they are seeing adoptive parents who basically are, are thinking of the expectant mom as a surrogate, you know, who's, who they're paying to carry their mm -hmm. child, so to speak. Is this something mm -hmm. that you see? Well, um, I do see families who, who might be inclined to treat <laughs> expectant mothers this way. Uh, but again, that's why we spend a lot of time educating them around this and being able to draw the, uh, the bridge between adoptive parents and expectant moms in, in terms of having empathy for them and understanding that this isn't your child until after the child is born. Like, legally, this isn't your child until after the child is born and until she signs the documents that will, will relinquish those rights 
to you. Mm-hmm. And we really do talk about, especially in the home study process for, for adoptive parents who do struggle with issues around control to talk about, okay, how, what are the coping skills that you have? What's in your toolbox for you to bring out? Because there are going to be things that are out, just completely out of your control in terms of the decisions that an expectant mom makes. And, and kind of another parallel is the, the things that might drive you nuts about an expectant mother might also be the reasons why she's placing mm. to begin with. So the decision-making... That's a really good point. Right. And so to, to understand that and understand her as, as a human who and a person who is just simply trying to make the best out of a tough situation mm. and the best that you can do is support her so that she can best support the child that you hope to adopt until, until she delivers. Mm -hmm. And uh, what type of counseling is provided? And this varies substantially, I should add, between agencies uh, and and agencies and adoption attorneys and things uh, and and different other options for um, adoption professionals. But counseling after the adoption seems like it is such an important piece uh, of, Mm -hmm. uh, of of a service that adoptive parents should be expecting and should should ask for. Right. So we actually have a whole department dedicated to to this. It's post adoption services. So there is a um, a social worker who can provide ongoing support and counseling to families who who would want that or need that. And we also host ongoing educational seminars every month. We we host a different seminar on some adoption-related topic. So one month it was on transracial adoption. Another month it was actually last month it was on the seven core issues of adoption. And then we've had it be we've had a a birth mom come and share their story. Uh, so that I think is is an important piece to have this ongoing education. And also I think community is such a huge piece in. And just family building in general, because being able to have other other families who have gone through a similar journey and can relate to you can be your greatest resource in so many ways. So um, hosting and before coronavirus, we would have an annual picnic. So families pre and post adoption could come and and just mingle and play with other kids and be able to to develop that that mm-hmm. support system as well. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Now back to you, Stephanie. Uh, you matched with a adoptive prospective adoptive family towards the middle of your pregnancy, and they were involved in your pregnancy. Some people feel that that experience could be coercive; that it makes it harder for a mom to decide to parent after she has formed a relationship with a birth family and and the fear that, that if she decides to parent, she knows whose heart she is breaking. Do you, what, did you ever feel that, that you had the full authority, full right to, to parent? And do you feel like it was coercive in any way that you had formed a relationship with your daughters, with the prospective adoptive parents before delivery? Um, actually, that was something that the the counselor, um, you know, had, had mentioned is, you know, uh, for both of us um, to, you know, don't, don't necessarily 
put your heart on your sleeve because it's devastating. I don't think that I ever really was felt like I had to go through with this. Um, or maybe if I did, it was a sense of, you know, I walked down this road, I've made such a hash of my life that it was pretty much adoption or nothing. I mean, we, I didn't want her to be raised by a single mother and she would have been raised by a single mother in poverty, no less. And, mm -hmm. and it wasn't, I don't feel, feel like her parents ever coerced me or that there was some coercion there. Mm -hmm. I think if there was, it was my own poor choices, let's put it that way. Am I understanding you correctly to say you feel like your choices put you in a position that this was the, the best option, the only option you really foresaw? That okay. is correct, yes. So what was your hospital experience oh, like, Stephanie? Oh, man, here we go. Um, <laughs> oh, let me tell you a story. Let me tell you, I swear to you, truthful here. I gave birth in Houston, Texas, and... As a society, we're not very kind to women who choose not to parent the children they bring into the world. We're just not. When I was about a month before I actually gave birth, you have to go down and pre-register at the hospital. And I took my daughter's mother, her name is Kathy. So Kathy and I went down to uh, pre-register and the registration lady said something to the effect of well I just don't know what kind of mother would do this um, that was strike one and I remember and it was great I fell in love with Kathy for reals and forever because she looked her right in the eye and she says the kind of mother who thinks of her child mm. if I could cross stitch that and put that on a wall I would because that <laughs> is really what it's about it's about the kind of mother who thinks about the welfare of her child. But you know, the nurses didn't quite know what to make of this. They didn't know what to think. They, um, to begin with, they didn't, I had a cesarean section. She was a transverse breach and blah, 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 blah. I had a, a, a cesarean. So I, they didn't really want to put me on the maternity ward because they were afraid that all the babies, the sound of the babies and the new mothers would upset me, which was silly, but I understand that. And they were, they didn't know whether or not, for example, Kathy, I wanted Kathy to spend a little bit of time while we were still in the hospital with, with her daughter, because she's going to be taking this child home. And if she has any questions, I wanted her to be able to ask the nurses. And the nurse, Kathy would ask the question and the nurses would answer, would look at me and they would speak to me and i'm like um ma'am i it's not my question you don't understand we're going to hit the the front door and i'm going to go north and they're going to go south and why are you there was this sense of not knowing what to do or what to make of it it, it mm -hmm. felt like you were blazing this trail when adoption is not that uncommon it, it is uncommon mm -hmm. but it's not that uncommon Mm -hmm. Where hopefully we've made some progress with hospital experiences. Oh, Although I will say that for you know that that uh, that other to other hospitals will do just the opposite. Mm -hmm. uh, other hospital personnel, and that is that they address everything towards the adoptive parents and right. treat the at this point the the parent right. uh, as if they are not even there. So that's another two sides of the same coin, but but both equally bad, I suppose. It's a little surreal. I will say that. <laughs> just... Yeah. And so the emotions for when, when you left the hospital and they went south and you went north, 
Uh, tell us some about the emotions that you were experiencing. Oh, this is kind, actually, it's kind of funny. It is a funny story. So Kathy wanted, my daughter, our daughter was born on a Friday evening. And on Sunday morning, the, I was cleared to be discharged. I, I could go home. And Kathy and Mike, her parents, decided that they would give her birth father and I some time with her at the hospital and that they would just stay at home and give us all a little bit of time to think it over. And so a Sunday morning, um, they're telling me, well, you know, you could go home, you could be discharged. And I'm in this panic because I can't find Kathy and I can't find Mike. And I actually came completely unglued. I mean, postpartum, uh, the emotional hormonal roller coaster. I thought they changed their minds and didn't want the baby. So I'm having a complete meltdown. Oh, no. <laughs> well, well, it's ridiculous. I mean, in hindsight, it's absolutely, of course they didn't change their mind. But so, and it was very important to Mike and Kathy that they be given a child. That was one of their, their big must-haves. They, they didn't want to feel like they were taking a child. They wanted to be given a child. So hospital policy at that time was that the, the woman who brought the child into the world had to be discharged with the child. So we got wheeled down out to the main entrance and I got out of the wheelchair and I handed my daughter over to them. And I think that's when it was really real. Um, mm -hmm. It just, you know, because up until then, it was a long process of waiting to say goodbye and all of a sudden it's time and it's mm -hmm. it, it's you know i can still cry just thinking about it that was i think the hardest thing i have ever had to do to know mm -hmm. that's the right answer and to be confronted <laughs> with mm -hmm. the reality of it it was a roller coaster that day let me tell you <laughs> yeah well, i bet and, and what were the emotions for the first couple of months, the first year? And what was helpful uh, for you to get through that time? A lot of it, this particular agency offers lifetime counseling. So to this day, I could pick up the phone and there would be somebody who would talk to me. So excellent. that helped enormously. And I got to stay because I didn't really have a, a, a home. I mean, my home was a Peterbilt. Um, I was staying in a house with other women who were going to place their children. And so I stayed there for about six weeks. And there was quite a bit of sort of aftercare, if you will, because it was an open adoption. I did get to see my daughter when she was about 10 days old, when the, the, the newness, everybody had sort of settled into our new reality at that point. And I remember being absolutely amazed that I brought this little girl into the world and that I made this family. <laughs> hmm. To hmm. step back and to see this, this family and to realize I did this. Wow, hmm. I got to take part in a miracle. <laughs> and, and describe your open adoption uh, throughout your daughter's life. Um, it started out initially uh, until she was about into well into the, about the first grade. It was mostly letters. They were able to um, get a hold of me if they had questions. Um, one of the things that I didn't think to mention when I filled out the health paperwork was that quite a lot of members of my family have allergies to to nickel and to metal, 
uh, nickel being the big one. So when Kathy was confronted with a rash that she didn't, Holly went on to get this rash and, and Kathy couldn't quite figure out, do I panic? What do I do about this? And um, it helped her a lot to be able to kind of reach out to me a little bit because it was a very non-judgmental relationship for me to be able to tell her, you know, she's probably allergic to muddle or it could be the perfumes and the dyes and soap. So obviously she knew what to do, but it was, I think, helpful for her to have additional mm -hmm. information and to have somebody who was very much on her side, you know, uh, telling her, mm -hmm. you got this, it's okay, it's, it's breathe, it'll be okay. So you would, she would reach out to you via letter. This is, uh, let's see, this is phone calls. The, this would have been about nineteen, yeah. about the year two thousand or so. Okay. So you know, we could text a little bit, but um, you know, she would just kind of reach out. She's got a bit of a rash, and I said, "Oh yeah." Speaking of which, yeah, okay. <laughs> and then, uh, did the did the openness change at any point thereafter? You were originally just phone calls between you and Kathy, and right. Uh, letters and things did it change to a different form of openness as yeah uh, as, as as holly got older yeah once she became a teenager and was a little bit more um wanting to take some more control with you know there were some pretty you know there were boundaries but she was pretty much in the driver's seat at that point um, mm -hmm. she could get a hold of me but the running joke in our little triad was always you know she would threaten her tell Kathy, I'm going to go live with my real mother. And then I being the real mother would say, but you, you're living with your real mother. <laughs> it's not going to get better here. That's your real mother. So it's, it, um, as it, it, like any other relationship, it just evolves over time. Mm -hmm. She was allowed to be in the driver's seat to some extent. And it's interesting, you know, she's the reason I'm a grandmother. She's a grown up now, obviously. And um, yeah, it, and yet Kathy and I still have a, a relationship, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was going to ask, what is your relationship with both your daughter and her mom now? Um, every year for Mother's Day, I always, I have from the beginning, I've always sent Kathy a bouquet not necessarily roses, but I, you know, I'll send her a flower, a bouquet and, and wish her a happy mother's day and, and thank her for, in some ways, choosing adoption was a really selfish thing on my part because it gave me the opportunity to grow up. Somebody was willing to step in and save me in, in a sense. I could grow up and I didn't have to take anybody with me. So I've always sent her, you know, Mother's Day. I always thank her for um, resetting, giving me an opportunity to grow up, you know, a, a do-over, as it were. And I've always thanked her for that. Um, Holly and I get along pretty well. I don't hear from her, you know, every couple of, couple of times a year. Seems to be what she's good with at this point. It's... Um, I think the the message that she'd been getting all her life that Kathy is her real mother and yes I brought you into this world yes we share some DNA but that's you know that that's your mother I'm here and I love you very much but that I think that message has has really sunk in she does reach out to me and we do have 
you know, a good relationship, I would say. It's, it's, it's more the relationship is really now more with Kathy and I, which is odd, really odd. Hmm. Not what I would have expected. Huh, interesting. All right. Uh, Chantilly, something that Stephanie said that struck me and is so important is the availability of counseling post-placement for, at this point, there would be a birth mom. The term would be the birth mom. Can you talk a little about what you see and why that is important? Yes. Um, I think it's important because if anyone who's experienced grief or loss understands that it's not something you just get over. It's Mm -hmm. something that you learn to live with or you learn to cope with. So it is a lifelong experience. And so with that understanding, when you place a child, that is, that is a great loss and having the support, the ongoing support and services available to you um, as a birth mom is is vital to to your ongoing health and also just validation and and just support in terms of your your process and and your choice. So we do, like I said, my pregnancy options hotline. It also kind of serves as just uh, counseling for for birth parents who have gone through the process too. And in California, we also have a great foundation that we partner with that provides ongoing services for, for birth parents, um, well, birth mothers in, in particular. And they host annual, actually, I think it's twice a year, they, they host retreats for birth parents. So it's, um, it's a really great time for, for birth moms to be able to meet other birth moms, because I think Stephanie had mentioned earlier that it can really feel like an isolating experience and being able to, yeah, being able to connect with others who have, who, who share this with Mm -hmm. you and um, you can relate to in that way can really be an essential part of one's healing. And we recognize that and, and really encourage the the women that we work with to, we, we actually will refer them to this organization that, that provides this ongoing support system. Is it open to family, to uh, birth parents outside of California? Uh, Not all 50 states. I think um, there are certain states that they're open to. If the birth parents signed California relinquishments, it is available to them. Uh, But right now they're, they're uh, limited to to California. Okay. But there are, there are other birth parent support groups. There are some in, there are some in-person groups that exist. Your adoption agency should be able to connect the uh, mom who has placed a child to these groups. There are also Facebook groups. There are groups available uh, nationwide that, that birth parents as well as adoptive parents should encourage their birth parents, uh, their their child's birth parent, but also birth parents on their own uh, can connect. Stephanie, I'm going to give you the last word. If if you could tell adoptive parents one thing about the experience of being pregnant and trying to decide on whether to place your baby for adoption, what would that be? It would actually be two things, I think. Uh, first off, the pain and the sense of loss that infertile couples feel is what your birth mother is going to be feeling mostly that um, there's that and then the importance of 
just honest communication of keeping you know, whatever promises you've made to keep them. Yes. Um, you don't want to feel betrayed. You don't want to feel used. You don't want to feel uh, like somebody has just snatched your child and tossed you in the bushes. <laughs> it's um, mm -hmm. a very, it's a lonely time. It's, it, it is literally waiting to say goodbye. So it can be a very lonely time. Mm -hmm. I, I guess some sensitivity to, she's not necessarily, you know, at that time, I really couldn't, I couldn't imagine what she was feeling. And looking back on it, I, I'm amazed that she, you know, it, it's amazing that it worked out as well as it did. Because it, neither of us, there's all these hopes that you're taking to the table. And if you can kind of put those aside a little and relate to that person. Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe if nothing else, treat this woman or this couple as people, uh, as people who are probably going through one of the hardest times of their life. Oh, yes. You know, we we talk a lot about the birth mother. Um, and to some extent, I think we forget about the birth father. And uh, unfortunately, only about, as she said, only about 20% of those couples actually are a couple. So that mm -hmm. might be why, but he's there too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good point. Yeah, good it's a point. Very hard thing for him. Very hard. Mm -hmm. Yes, and I, and I think you're right. We don't tend to give as much attention to, partly because they're not as often as involved. But yes, I, I agree with you totally. Well, thank you so much, Stephanie Ryder and Chantilly Wijayasinha, for being with us today to talk about understanding who women are who are making who the women are who are making the decision to place children for adoption uh, i truly appreciate it hey i have a favor to ask please pop over to itunes or stitcher or whatever podcast app you are using and give us a rating ratings are how people find us it is how we get increased listenership that is really important to us and our mission and uh, we would really appreciate it. it doesn't take very long and the appreciation is huge thank you let me remind everyone that the views expressed in this show are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the position of creating a family our partners or our underwriters also keep in mind that the information given in this interview is general advice to understand how it applies to your specific situation you need to work with your adoption or foster care professional i will see you all next week.